So uh, I guess we can just start then. So this is uh, Control Structure, episode 53 for uh, January 15th, 2014. Uh, I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and uh, we have uh, a returning guest on. Uh, hello, Stephen. How are you? Hi. Good. How are you? Ah, uh, man. This past week has been sort of eventful, but sort of in the bad ways. Let's see, it wasn't exactly too cold the past week, but... Uh, Something that really sucked, though, was, uh, wasn't last Saturday, but it was the Saturday before that, uh, I was going out on a milk run, as I do, uh, but it was on a Saturday morning, but, okay, so I went to go do a milk run, and, uh, you know, I'm, I, uh, turned to go up to the hill to the Giant Eagle, and suddenly my car decides that it doesn't want to turn left anymore. And I plowed into a curb and up onto the sidewalk. So, uh, long story short, the uh, the front passenger wheel just was totally shot. The suspension underneath and uh, stuff, uh, pretty penny, not good. Um, so I've been driving a rental car for the past week and a half or so. Um, so yeah, it should be should uh that should be fixed tomorrow and i should be able to pick it up then so i hope your uh week has gone a little bit better than that yeah my my week's been slightly better than that at least documentation at work just the normal stuff yeah things have been pretty slow at my work um so you know occasionally every so often a bug will come in and uh you know of course jobs sometimes fail and, you know, I gotta check that out. It's like, oh, is this sort of a routine failure that we can't really control? Or is this, like, some sort of data failure? Um, other than that, uh, pretty quiet. So, but uh, before we go any further, I want to uh, say hello to anyone who might be listening uh, from iTunes. Uh, thank you, Ryan, for uh, putting us up there. And uh, if there happens to be a guy named Ryan listening to this from iTunes, hello. Um, uh, glad we're glad you found us. So, uh, and uh, we do have show notes for this show. Uh, please go to thenexus.tv and uh, figure out the latest episode of Control Structure there, or at least number fifty-three, anyway. Um, so, yeah, anyways, uh, some other things have been going on. The uh, Broken Age Kickstarter was released yesterday, um, which uh, I managed to play through in about two... I was thinking it was maybe about three or four hours. Uh, really short, but it's only the first part of the game. And this, this Kickstarter was the Kickstarter that kind of put Kickstarter on the map and made funding viable for everything. Um, so, and I will be uh, reviewing it in a blog post and perhaps on the next 8-bit episode on this very network. So, and, uh, in response to, uh, everyone's outrage over the new SimCity, uh, EA has finally built an offline mode into it, 
uh, complete with the uh, feature of saving and reloading cities. Uh, this personally does not affect me much, but it affects my pastor and your pastor on Thursdays. Um, I remember him asking me about it. He's like, should I get the new SimCity? I'm like, no. And I think that was maybe within the week that it came out. So, and this game it was once the butt of a joke on this very podcast. So it's it's great that we have now recovered technology we once lost. So, yeah. So is, so is Pastor hoping to play it, it offline? Is that what he was? I really don't think that he minds much, but I think he minded a little bit more because... Uh, uh, his wife was complaining about the amount of clicking that he was doing in that game, so he bought a new mouse that <laughs> is pretty silent. So he's like, he's bragging about, yeah, I got this mouse, it's totally quiet. He's like, okay, that's great. And yeah, I'm playing SimCity. I'm like, oh, why'd you do that for? So... Uh, but uh, by living somewhat in the past, I can play SimCity 2000 on a slower computer, an older machine, uh, and uh, so I can you know save my cities. I have not lost that ability. Uh, I also do not have the ability to have Twatter and Fartbook on my phone. Uh, thus, I am able to retain my ability to notice the ocean, uh, unlike this woman who uh, walked off a pier in Australia and straight into the water. So this uh, happened uh, about a month ago, but I still had it lying around. So yeah, what do you think about you know people who cannot take their attention away from their phones? Well, it seems like she... Probably learned your lesson. That that sounds like something out of a cartoon. You know, someone's on their phone and they just walk along right off in the water. <laughs> so, <laughs> she must have really been paying attention to her phone. Yeah, she was still out in the water lying on her back in a floating position because she told us later that she couldn't swim. Uh, Senior Constable Dean Kelly of the State Water Police told ABC... She still had her mobile phone in her hand, and initially she apologized and said sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. This is this is one of the many accidents caused by social networking. Um, but, you know, it's sad that this happened, but I guess it's sur- the survival of the fittest at work. So... And uh, from the, uh, you know even though we haven't really talked about computer science much yet in this podcast, we still talk about things, you know, science-y that are just cool, because apparently uh, any science podcast on this network is automatically doomed for failure. Um, But the Institute of Dynamic Systems and Control have built Cubely. This is a cube that can move around and balance on one corner thanks to a set of three internal wheels. Uh, this thing is uh, pretty amazing that, you know, it's just a, it's sort of like a metal frame of a cube that, uh, you know, has wheels in it, and it jumps up onto its side, then onto its corner, and, you know, you can push it around a little bit, and it still wants to stay standing up. It was, I, I saw the video for it, and it was really interesting. It reminded me, it probably is the same thing, and it, 
I saw a video a month or so ago of these cubes and they had magnets on them and they could stick together and they had that ability to jump up on an edge. They, they didn't show them on a corner, just on an edge. And what they could do is they could roll and snap together and they could build themselves. So like they, they could climb up like a, they could build a tower. They would climb up each other and then stand on top of each other with the magnets and huh. uh, form shapes. It was, it was, I saw a video of it. I, I can't think why, how to find the link, but. It was it was really interesting to see them move around like that, and I, they referenced that in the article about uh, more than that in the video about them being used together to build things. This probably is the same cube that can do that. So, uh, anyways, uh, we don't necessarily have a Kickstarter Kickstarter of the week, but we have some Kickstarter research. Um, so some. Uh, people at uh, uh, Georgia Tech uh, have uh, looked around Kickstarter. They've researched it to determine what phrases sell projects and which ones do not. So uh, it turns out that phrases uh, with, you know, uh, how should I say, an a air of reciprocity, scarcity, social proof, social identity, liking, and authority do pretty well. So, uh, whereas the phrases that uh, were from projects that didn't get funded were things like not been able, even a dollar, later I hope to get. Uh, Whereas the ones that were funded uh, said stuff like also receive two, mention your, uh, given the chance, your continued and we can afford. I found it interesting the non-funded one, the even a dollar, then the later I. So it was, it was almost more of a unsure. Like if you're you're begging someone for money, you say, yeah, you know, just a dollar. It's like you're not you're not even sure if they're gonna give you anything. So it's like you're not even sure of your own project. I guess maybe is what the the rationale. Yeah, quietly in your mind going on. It was it was kind of interesting. Okay, we can shout raspberry. Raspberry. Raspberry? Raspberry. Raspberry! Okay. So, this article, this guy is making, it says a bullet time camera rig. And it's uh, oh, this is 48 cool. raspberry pies and 48 raspberry pie cameras. <laughs> so, I haven't fully seen it yet, but it, there's a video to it. It looks like he's putting them all together and I assume somehow he's going to measure the speed of a bullet. I, I haven't read I haven't seen the video yet but it looked kind of interesting. Wow. I'll have to read that later. So I know that uh, high speed cameras are pretty expensive but you know if you have 48 Raspberry Pis and they're going at uh, 24 FPS and that you, if you can sort of you know time it right you can have like 24 times 48 frames per second. 
Oh, that's true because you have the length of it. So yeah. I, I just but but it would sort of be at sort of differing viewpoints. But you might be able to do some uh, image processing magic in order to rectify that. That's true. I guess depending upon what you're you're trying to do as well. I, I just did the the I multiplied what? Oh, like thirty. The raspberry pies are about thirty a piece, and then yeah. there's forty eight of them. So that would cost you about one thousand four hundred and forty dollars to set up, just in the cost of the pies. So. <laughs> I don't know what an actual camera would cost that would be capable of. I'm pretty sure high-speed cameras are much more expensive than that. Because I, I remember uh, Loading Ready Run, they did an entire series where they rented a high-speed camera for a week. And they pretty much, you know, uh, I want to say binge or grind just filming the crap out of things falling and breaking apart with that. And I recall that later they said that, yeah, those things are not cheap. <laughs> so, and uh, now for this week's LOL Apple. <laughs> are you familiar with the uh, new Kintoshes that are coming out? The ones in trash cans? Yes. Uh, so a Hackintosh modder has actually fit a Hackintosh, you know, those sort of... Uh, the PC parts that can run OS X. Now they fit it into a trash can in honor of the new Mac Pros coming out that actually look like a real trash can. Ah, see, that's the piece I didn't know about was the Mac Pros actually look like a trash can. Ha. Yes. You know, it looks exactly like this, except, uh, you know, these... You. <laughs> except, except, uh, you know, they, uh, these Hackintoshes can apparently can come in a variety of colors. Instead of the plain black? Yep. So, but unfortunately, they're also much slower than a Mac Pro. Um, but, uh, uh apparently the specs are a Core i3. Uh, let's see, I'm not sure how much RAM, but probably max it out around 16 or 32 gigs since it's a mini ITX board, um, along with a Radeon 7750, uh, compared to two Fire Pro GPUs. So, so yeah, this is, uh, you know, I saw this this morning, and I'm like, ha, that's awesome. So, uh, have you ever uh, looked into making a Hackintosh? No, I've never played much with the Macs. The only I, I, that I ever played with them was years back. I found one of their older versions on the internet. It was probably like Windows 3.1 era versions. And so it was like long after it wasn't used by anyone. And I found an emulator that let me run it on like a Windows machine. And that, that was pretty much the only Mac I've ever played with extensively was that. Hmm. So, you know, I have limited experience with Macs, but pretty much after about 2000 or so, my experience has been extremely limited. So, you know, and I really haven't had the desire to, you know, uh, emulate or uh, build Apple platforms or have anything Apple. So, so 
Anyways, on one of the earlier episodes of this podcast, I ran an article on Andrew Kim and his uh, ideas about a rebranded Microsoft revolving around extremely slanted parallelograms. Uh, he has since been hired by Microsoft and has a biography page there. So, uh, he's apparently working in the Xbox division there. Or now, since everything's been reorganized, whatever Xbox falls under there. So, yeah, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what he's trying to do there. Maybe he's working more on interface design. Because, like, the uh, Xbox brand at Microsoft sort of already has a visual identity to it. Is that what this guy specializes in? Is like the the advertisement for? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. He, uh, I think he was just a recent graduate of uh, some school, and this was just okay. uh, you know the Microsoft rebranding project was sort of an extension of that. Interesting. Then that would be his first major job out of school. Then is the yeah. <laughs> That's, that's a pretty good way to get a job. You make a website, become somewhat famous, and get hired by the company he chose. <laughs> so, he must be good at what he does. Yeah, um, if you haven't uh, looked at it, um, you know, oh, you're already in that article there. So yeah, yeah I, I I was just going through it just now. So yeah, the uh, the mockups he does is pretty impressive. So, and this was, I think, not less than a month later that, you know, Microsoft actually rebranded itself with that uh, four squares uh, from, like, whatever it was before. So, yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah. So, um... um See, I was not hoping to talk much about this, since we are not the Gadget Show, uh, but Google has brought bought out Nest for 3.2 Instagrams. And I think I just wanted to put it in here to refer to Instagrams as billion dollars. Okay, I was wondering, what, it's like, what's the Instagram thing? <laughs> because, you know, Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars. Okay, yeah, I, I remember the Instagram with Facebook. Okay, so I see. So to buy something for an Instagram means to buy it for a billion dollars. Okay. So, yeah, uh, Nest, uh, if anyone knows, is a company that makes uh, smart home appliances like thermostats and uh, apparently now smoke alarms, uh, stuff like that. So. And, uh, you know, I've heard people that, you know, really like their Nest thermostat. Um, you know, it sort of, you know, observes your behavior and is like, okay, someone's in the room. I better bump it up to whatever, like 70 degrees or whatever. But, like, if you start changing it regularly to, say, 73, like, I think it, like, automatically remembers that or something. I'm not exactly sure how they work, but. Apparently, they're like a miracle to a lot of people. See, it sounds like a thermostat I heard about a while back. Someone was telling me about, and they said that it would, it would like like this one, uh, 
it, it knows when you're in the room, but they said it would also learn your pattern, like which days you're in the room at certain times. So it would like preemptively say, okay, he's going to be home in about three minutes. So I'll, I'll kick on the heat now and get the temperature up. Yeah, like that. So uh, I think this might be the uh, the most expensive Google acquisition. So um, anyways, uh, if you recall, that last year seemed like it was the year that the 90s finally died uh, with uh, Winamp being killed by AOL. But uh, now it looks like the llama lives on. Uh, Radio Nami a Belgian internet radio company has bought Winamp and Shoutcast from AOL for somewhere between five to ten million dollars uh, plus equity in Radionami. So, uh, have you ever used Winamp? No, I never did. I recognized it, but I couldn't really think what it was. Is it basically just an online, kind of like Pandora type of thing? or? Um, well, Winamp itself is a music player. You know, sort of like iTunes, except uh, not iTunes. (laughs) See, I wondered if it was a music player at first. Yeah, so, and Shoutcast is sort of, it's it's, uh, radio streaming software, so, like, it will play, like, whatever you throw at it, or some other thing, and it also has another part where there's a directory of all of these Shoutcast instances that you can say, oh, well, that sounds good. Like, I want to listen to rock, and here's, like, a billion radio stations online that play rock music or whatever. So, um, it's not quite like Pandora. It's not exactly focused to you, because, like, on Pandora, you can say, okay, I don't like this song, next. Okay, next. Okay, okay. next, Was or whatever. That's... Um, focused on the just channels of yeah music so and apparently it's pretty big um i've only seldomly used shoutcast um to actually find anything to listen to uh i normally would do it around like christmas but uh you know uh let's see it was a few years ago back when i actually had uh, we were talking about uh, my toilet blog engine, but more on that later. Uh, I actually named the computer it was running on toilet. And it's like, okay, well, what, what kind of servery things can I put on here? And one of them was a streaming, you know, music. Uh, sort of like Shoutcast, but Icecast, it was called. It was sort of the same thing, except you could multiplex uh, your streams, because apparently the Shoutcast software only allows one stream of audio at a time so if you wanted multiple ones you'd have to fire up multiple shoutcast instances whereas whereas icecast can just natively support multiple channels so uh plus i think it supported a wider range of uh, audio formats but uh you know i've 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 sort of played around with it but it was all right but then I finally decided that, yeah, streaming audio isn't exactly my uh, thing. So, but yeah, anyways, uh, uh, Radio Nami here says that it wants to, you know, give some love to Winamp. So, uh, as a current Winamp user, I uh, I look forward to seeing what they're going to do. 
So, uh, do you use Dropbox? I do use Dropbox. So, uh, did they have a outage recently? I did not notice the outage, even though, according to this article, there was one last weekend. Yeah, so uh, apparently last Friday uh, evening, uh, Dropbox went down a little bit uh, during routine maintenance. Uh, apparently there was some uh, like some uh, operating system update that didn't exactly go as planned and caused some corruption or something. And uh, there was like some massive database carnage going on, but apparently no data was lost or anything. It was just uh, a small outage for like a some percentage of their user base. So they uh, modified or created a script that uh, you know made sure that the particular node it uh, was finished doing its synchronization and that it was you know okay. That was uh, you know that it's not really doing anything before it uh, does an update. It's good that they're, they have the redundancy in place. They didn't actually lose any data. Because, I mean, it's fine that they had an outage of service for a short time period. But what would not have been fine would be if they had lost data. Like, that would have been an issue. Yeah. So, and uh, apparently they use MySQL for some reason. So, you know, on a uh, operation as large as uh, Dropbox does, you'd probably think that they use some sort of distributed file system like uh, uh, whatchamacallit uh, Hadoop or something. So, and they uh, say that the script that they made they will, uh, they want to open source that. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Very kind of interesting. So, um, you don't use Firefox, do you? I have been using Firefox lately, despite its lack of ability to search for one word if you type it in the address bar. <laughs> but that's the awesome bar. It's supposed to be awesome. <laughs> I, I know it's not very awesome with one word without one word searches though. <laughs> and I'm not the only person out there. And it won't take co colons either. You type in a word in a colon and it blows up and well, if find it. the I've I've sort of noticed that too. You have to put a space between the colon and the beginning of what you're searching for. Well, the, the thing is, what, what if the word I'm searching for it has a colon in it? Then you replace it with a space. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty sure Google would pick up on that just, okay, just fine. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm so lazy that it's like, oh, I want to uh, look at, you know, some article in my blog from a long time ago. Like, I'll just put in a keyword or something, space, site, colon, mysite.com. Yes. So, um, anyways, so yeah, the uh, one word awesome bar. <laughs> <laughs> you could say you're not exactly a fan of, <laughs> but... Uh, not, not that they make the, the one word thing work. <laughs> so, uh, uh, it seems that Firefox is the only remaining browser that... Uh, does not have a multi-process architecture to it. Um, but uh, apparently, uh, it Firefox does have a multi-process architecture, but it's only enabled 
uh, or only can be enabled, rather, in the nightly builds. I was reading how they they put the system together. It's kind of interesting. They said that they're using uh, like messaging, like IPC between the processes. So then it's like the parent processes run run the whole thing, and then it has the child processes that fork off. So then only the parent process can talk to each of the child ones. Well, interesting. But you know, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, I'm. I'm, you know, vaguely aware of, you know, IPC as it is, but I hear it's sort of messy underneath. Can be messy. So, you know, having as little as possible, that sort of makes sense. And it seems like a reasonable, reasonably efficient architecture to do that with. They actually said in the article that they're using a library from Chromium for the IPC, which I found was interesting. <laughs> So, and, uh, you know, ironically, um, you know, you know, when Chrome got released, the multi-process architecture was something that it was, uh, you know, widely lauded for, uh, but it seems that Internet Explorer 8, uh, used that some time before Chrome was even released. Hmm. I guess Chrome had the, the whole task manager thing in it, so it's, you could actually see that it was had these processes running and all that. It made it kind of nice. So I've never really used it much. Like, only one or two times I've ever used the task manager in Chrome. Um, but uh, you could sort of say that was a precursor to Chrome OS. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is essentially that, but sort of on steroids. So. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Firefox having this. Uh, seems like they still got some, uh, bugs to iron out or something. So hopefully they can promote that along with the, uh, 64-bit, uh, Windows builds as well. So, hey, uh, speaking about Chrome, uh, Chromium, which is the base to both Chrome and Opera these days, uh, has a New Year's resolution, uh, to go on a diet, uh, that is to become smaller and faster. So, uh, if you recall that uh, uh, Chrome and Safari sort of had a break over WebKit, and that WebKit was forked. So, like, Chromium now has its own code base separate from WebKit, and, you know, they can do different things now. They can start, you know, throwing out old code or code that they don't use that was, you know, more for the other project. So... You know, apparently Chrome has become a little bit bloated of late. Uh, have you noticed that? I haven't noticed it. Even though I'm, I still do use Chrome at work, and I do do the many tabs open at once thing, but it hasn't been bad. Of course, I have like, I don't know, 8 or 10 gigs of RAM at work and like 6 processors, so maybe that helps. I I think it does. Um, but, you know, hopefully this will... Uh, you know, be rather obvious because at work, you know, all the time I'm going over to my manager and, you know, they have about, you know, two or three dozen Chrome tabs open along with maybe Word or Excel. And on, I'm not sure if they have two or four gigs of RAM in those laptops, 
but you noticed in that <laughs> even even at four gigs, you know that's not exactly that much. So, um, yeah, you know, like they're always saying, "It's like, yeah, laptop's slow. Why? <laughs> Doesn't like me today, or something." But uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that it's uh, swapping to disk. That's what making it so slow. Yeah, that definitely slow them down. So. Uh, Scott also has a New Year's, uh, let's see, well, actually, getting a little bit too far ahead here. A good thing, uh, also because Scott Hanselman is looking for a low-memory browser, and it seems that, uh, Internet Explorer and Firefox do not do that bad. Um, but then again, the, uh, examples that he shows here is that he's using the beta, uh, builds of Firefox and Chrome, uh, which... I mean, if you're wanting memory optimization, you sort of have to blame yourself for using uh, alpha builds of browsers and then complaining yeah. about uh, not having <laughs> enough memory. So um, he's uh, basically doing this because he has uh, uh, four gigs of RAM and is, uh, I think it's some sort of Lenovo laptop. So, and, like, he actually writes scripts that, uh, you know, tally up the, uh, you know, the memory. But then that sort of gets into a mess because, you know, with all the Chrome tabs open, that each Chrome process also reports its shared memory total. Ah, so then the shared memory is multiplied. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, uh... Seems that, uh, you know, Firefox is, uh, actually not too bad with memory these days. Because, uh, you know, back, like, three or so years ago, about Firefox 4 to about 10 or so, that, uh, you know, memory consumption was a big issue. It seemed like it was pretty decent, even in the, that multi-process build that the article they're talking about. It was like 10 megabytes difference between the, the, the multi-process build and the normal build even, so it's, it does seem like it's pretty decent now. Yep. So, uh, so yeah, speaking about Scott there, he also has a New Year's resolution of 3200 by 1800. Um, so, and he blogs about how miserable high DPI computing is in Windows. So he's, uh, uh, Let's see, he's using a Lenovo Yoga 2 Pro. So, how many inch screen is that? I need to look at that because I, I was just looking at my resolution. I'm 192 by well, 1920 by 1080, which I thought was big. So, where, um, where was... let's see, I think that might be a 15 or so inch. Because, uh, you know, apparently Scott is a big fan of small and light MacBook uh, Air style, uh, small laptops. Okay. I was envisioning him having this giant wide screen. So he, he just has super high, uh, resolution on a small screen. Yeah, that's, uh, makes high DPI. So, you know, DPI is, you know, like how big a pixel is on your screen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just the pixels are very small and tiny. Yes. So he uh, goes over, you know, how, uh, you know, how applications handle this. Uh, so, you know, in Windows, 
uh, if you've poked around long enough, you've seen that uh, DPI scaler uh, where, you know, you can say, you know, I want fonts to be like 25% bigger or 125% or 150 or whatever. Yeah. So he uh, uses that and uh, some applications break horrendously and other ones handle it just fine. Yeah, I think that's, I don't know, kind of the thing with high resolutions like that is on a small screen, you have to turn your the scaler up so you can read the text because you're on such a small screen with such a high resolution. So, apparently, uh, the Windows Live Writer that he's using to write up this post does not handle it too well. Uh, apparently, uh, anything from Adobe just falls apart. Which is surprising because, you know, Adobe is more of a graphical design company. <laughs> You'd think that they'd be on top of their game there. Yeah. yeah. The Adobe one was pretty bad. It had icons overflowing the labels at the top of their logo oh. splash screen. Oh, oh, it gets even worse. Scroll down a little bit more, you see the Dropbox uh, app there. You see, like, the menu is totally bigger than its status updates. Uh, Let me look at the menu for comparison here. There we go. Oh, yeah, that is... I mean, the Dropbox... I mean, it's just so, the menu. So, so if if that menu in the picture is as big as the like the menu options in your menu, think about how small everything else in that smaller box is. That and is true. The smaller box is pretty small. <laughs> and then, and then, if you look down further, you see the labels twice as big as the check boxes that they go with. See, that's the thing. Resolution that big just. You reach, reach a point, if you don't have the screen space, that's why I assumed it was a big monitor. If you don't have the screen space, it's just going to be hard to see anything at that so, kind of resolution. And uh, apparently SQL Server Management Studio epically fails. <laughs> that's probably the worst one. Yeah. So, um, apparently Firefox doesn't do that bad. Uh, just like icons on the menus. Um, but apparently Visual Studio and Word uh, handle everything marvelously, as does the uh, GitHub for Windows app, which I've actually used recently. So, so yeah, um, then again, you could say that this is part of the early adopter tax. That adopter tax, yeah. So, you know, not only do you pay, you know, X percent more, uh, you know, to get it, like, right away, you also have to deal with everything not exactly being compatible with it. You know, it's sort of like all those 4K TVs that there isn't exactly much 4K content that would really take advantage of that. So, uh, on this uh, podcast here, I've also talked a little bit about uh, BTRFS, uh, or as people like to call it, better FS. Um, uh, Ars Technica uh, ran an article about new features that, uh, like next generation file systems, if you can call them that, about how what features these new file systems uh, bring, and he uh, pretty much goes through a tutorial on uh, like what BTRFS does and how to play around with it. So, and uh, this article explains why you should be excited about this too. 
So, uh, you know, once this uh, matures a little bit more, uh, perhaps, you know, to actually reach, you know, bulletproof, you know, stable in production type uh, stuff, that uh, I'll actually put it on my own server and use it. So, you know, it goes over things like uh, how a uh, hard drive can, uh, you know, silently corrupt your data. It's not an outright error. It's a subtle error. And how these uh, new file systems can handle that. So, and, uh, you know, stuff like copy on write and snapshots, that those features seem to be, uh, you know, the bullet points, like the big uh, killer features of this. What would copy on write be? So, like, so when you go and edit a file, uh -huh. like that's, you know, the file is edited in place, whereas copy on write, you know, means that you do not overwrite anything. You just create a new block. Oh, uh, okay. So you kind of still the old one there if you mess up writing to the original file, you, you can right. reel it back. Okay. So, and that plays into the snapshots as well. So, if you copy everything when you write something new, then you still have that old stuff uh, for a snapshot. And you can always reel it back to that time of the snapshot. Okay. So, and then there's, uh, uh, there's also a really neat feature that along with a copy on write, you can sort of have a, like a built-in uh, symbolic link to, to a file. So that you can have, say, a 100 gig file and copy it around on the same drive in like a millisecond or so. So, so, what, so what that does is essentially makes another pointer in your file system to this data on the disk. And then as you use that, that copy of the file and write new things and stuff, it just you know, sort of says, okay, all these segments are the same. This one over here points to this thing over there and then goes back to the original thing. We we already have symbolic links in Linux for a very long time. Why is what, what makes this different than how we already do symbolic links? Uh, because, well, when I say symbolic links, I mean sort of like that. I don't mean like actually like that. And that you have... Uh, that at the start you have two files, but they point to the same area on disk. Yeah. But as you open one of them and change it, it only mm -hmm. writes out those differences and leaves the original one the same. So it's sort of like an incremental backup, if you can think about that. So, so you're saying that you have two pointing to this ori same original one. You open one of them and write to it. So the one of the two is still the same, but the new one you wrote to is different? Yes. Okay. So it sort of does it smartly. It's it's like deduplication, but on a block level. Yeah. So, you know, it's like built-in source control. Yeah. So you know you can do you know, uh, you know really cool things like that. So it's like yeah, I can copy this huge file in an instant and change whatever I want in there, and you know. Say, you know, you copied a 100 gig uh -huh. file. Uh. You know, so I have two copies of this 100 gig file, it, but it only takes up 100 gigs on the disk. 
and is just storing your changes between the two. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. I, I, I see why this is useful now. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. So, like, yeah. you'd, like, go off and, you know, go crazy on the one copy, but there's only 150 gigs of space used between the two. Yeah. Even though, if you literally combine them, they're like 200 gigs. So that could be nice for things like, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe not. I was going to say for video editing, but really video editing, you could be producing a totally different file. Um, well, example. there's that, but uh, virtual machine images. VMs, yeah, that's true. So. You kind of, well, I mean, you kind of have that to some extent with VMs already. You have the snapshots. But, yeah, I, I could still see that being useful for something like that. Um, maybe databases. Uh, yeah, but you know, I'm trying to think of you know stuff that you copy around frequently. Yeah. So, um, if you were making a live CD or something like that, because you can mount a live CD for Linux and like modify it, maybe you might want to. Maybe you have this 4.7 gigabyte image file. You make a copy of it, mount it, and then like modify it, then write it back to the image file. Maybe. Uh, let's see. That's not a normal user activity, though. Yeah. So, and uh, you know, if you decide that you know I don't want this copy on write feature for like a specific directory, like say my Steam library, like you can disable it for that, and nothing within that will be uh, copy on write. So. Like, this is Steam. I download everything anyway. Like, I trust Steam yeah. enough that it won't screw me over. <laughs> so, um, yeah. That's, uh, you know, look at what's coming in the future. So, uh, you know, I suppose, like, everything you uh, sort of hate uh, patent trolls, right? Yes, I, I think there can be some pretty stupid patent lawsuits. Um, for instance, this one with the shopping cart that Newegg has been, been fighting over, and they now have eventually won. Oh, uh, what's it? What's the name of the company? Sovereign? Is that it? Sovereign or something? Sovereign. Was it? Was it foreign? Was it like England or something? But it, anyways, it looks like they. How Newegg finally got them on it was a technicality with uh, Comp. Was it Comp? Was it, what was the name of the company? Was it Comp something? I've had the article. Uh, let's see, I'm not sure. I read that. See, I think it was a, a, a link from this other article. I think I may have it. Next page. Ah, uh, oh, there you go. Comp Serve. That's it. Yeah, they got them on a technicality with this Comp Serve that they had a. Uh, magazine ad back in 1984 <laughs> that described an online shopping cart that wasn't online. It was like a a some sort of a, a digital electronic. I don't know if they sent sent in a CD or what. And it kind of was a shopping cart, and so that's how Newegg got this other company on it not being their copyright because CompServe had a similar electronic shopping so. cart system. So this, uh, I think this one was, uh, like, done earlier last year. Um, but, yeah, 
pretty much how they did it was they had one on their appeal, uh, New Egg one on their appeal, and uh, the patent troll company wanted to go to the Supreme Court, uh, but they were denied. So Winamp or Winamp, New Egg <laughs> wins. So, in light of their numerous troll victories, uh, Newegg is now selling t-shirts uh, saying, don't feed the trolls. I thought the, the interesting part was uh, they said that this the company actually went after Amazon.com, was the first site they targeted as the biggest one. I think they got $80 million out of them, and they won that. So, now it's like Amazon is out of that money. Maybe it wasn't eighty million. There's a lot. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess they figured that you know, hey, Amazon gave us money. Uh, pretty yeah. sure that everyone really? else will give us money too. It was interesting that they started with Amazon. Like, why would they go with, after the biggest one first? Probably because they was, had the most money. It was forty million that they got from Amazon. So was, yeah, but uh, this is a little bit different from the. Uh, uh, from the more recent uh, New Egg legal battle over uh, SSL encryption. So I didn't hear about that one. What happened with that? Um, uh, let's see. The trial happened, and they had lost. Uh, New Egg had lost that. Um, let's see, I'm I'm pretty sure that they had like Ron Rivest or something, the guy that actually made the algorithm, mm-hmm. and I think that. Uh, uh, like they had were at least thinking about uh, bringing in the thing. It was uh Hellman or Diffy, one of those guys yeah. that made the Diffy Hellman uh-huh. thing, and which essentially amounted to having God as a witness. <laughs> but I'm not sure why they didn't do that. Hmm. So, and that's you know pretty much exactly the stuff that they were trying to patent was his stuff. So, uh, anyways, uh, have you seen PC sales numbers dropping? I haven't been watching PC sales. But uh, apparently they've been going down for a long time uh, with uh, the rise of phones and tablets. So, um, you know, with all this, it seems that the, uh, the future of the web is at stake. Uh, because, you know, all these devices, they have apps on them. And uh, data tends to be locked into these apps, and they're not available on, you know, generally not available elsewhere. They can't access that. Um, so you essentially have these walled gardens everywhere. So as more and more data gets trapped in there, the uh, web ne- will get neglected and will start to deteriorate. See, see, I'm not quite sure I agree with that that idea. I mean, yes, apps might contain the data within their app, but I think in general you still have kind of the whole Internet is still your things like Google's real big in their Google Drive now, and like Microsoft has their, I forget what that's called, their, their equivalent cloud drive. SkyDrive. SkyDrive, okay, yeah. So I, I think you still really have a lot of data on the Internet the mobile devices just is a different way of using the computer to do what you need. And really, like, they have, uh, I forget what it's called, it's uh, a version of Ubuntu, 
that they're looking to make like the docking station for for an Android with. Or no, it's a Nexus is what they're looking at it making it for. And you pretty much you would drop it in, and then it gives you a keyboard and mouse, and it's essentially. Ah, uh, that was sort of like, like the uh, Ubuntu Edge phone. Yeah, it was, it was some version of Ubuntu. I, my brother has been watching it with great interest, which is the only reason why I know about it. But it, it's I, I think it's more so going that direction with mobile devices of it becoming your computer instead. But uh, unfortunately, it seems that that will happen anyway, along with the entire Internet, as a D.C. court has struck down the FCC's... Uh, uh, FCC's authority to regulate internet services. So this is uh, pretty bad for the uh, health of the web because it essentially guts uh, net neutrality. Um, the uh, you know this is like the principle that everything that is handled you know going through routers and stuff you know out on the networks uh, you know everything should be treated equally. So, you know, this is essentially, you know, the death of the Internet. Uh, rest in peace, Internet. Uh, you know, it lived from 1969. Uh, you know, the ARPANET stuff that got started in 1969, and it apparently died in 2014 with this. So let us have a moment of silence. Oh, those were good times, weren't they? <laughs> oh, yes. I remember back when we used to chat on the internet and and do podcasts and all that fun stuff. Yeah, and I remember earlier, uh, you know, back when there was, you know, something called Real Player, when we would, you know, watch, you know, blurry things and listen to crappy audio, uh, like, five seconds at a time. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite times was when you logged into the internet and it made a sound on your phone and and yeah. the, the dialing sound and the going out and you finally connects at four kilobytes per second and it's so fast. Four kilobytes, you were For lucky. Fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I know, I know I know for sure that I wasn't get, getting fifty six K. Yeah, I know. The the modem always says that it's so fast, but it's never actually that fast. I don't know how they ever calculated their their 56k. So, but uh, you know, thank you, decaying phone lines. I can only connect at 40k. I hate you, Sprint. <laughs> and yes, that was back when Sprint actually was a local carrier. So, uh, one could argue that the FCC put itself into this position by changing the classification of internet services from common carrier to internet information service uh, during the Bush Jr. era, and then not having the balls to reverse that decision in 2010, and instead they messed up everything uh, back in 2010. Like, they sort of carved out, like, special exceptions for this and that. And what's everyone's problem with not treating every bit on the wire the same? Why is that such a burden to everyone for? You know, it seems pretty easy to just treat everything the same. Because if you treat something differently, then you have to pick out things, and then it just sort of explodes in your face from there. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of filtering and a lot of extra load in some sense. So, of course. And, and not only that, 
the company would be contractually obligated to some other party to make sure that this happens. It's true. So, so if something goes wrong, they're liable for it. Of course, you still had, uh, what, Comcast. I don't know if they're still doing it or not, but a while back, there's a big thing about, like, BitTorrent traffic. They were filtering it out. If you hit so many gigs a month or whatever, they'd clamp down on you and make sure that you didn't go over their cap. So, but I, I recall that they also had some other sort of BitTorrent, uh, a deal going on where like they're actually trying to actively block it like this had nothing to do with the caps or anything so. yeah I, I remember them trying to block BitTorrent but they also had the caps as well like was, they were doing both things I think so and uh, you know like I've read online that uh, you know uh, people on Comcast would not even use 100 gigs and they would get a letter from Comcast saying please back off a little bit uh, whereas some others would use over 300 and be clear free for months. Hmm. Must not have had a very good reporting system there. But uh, in response to all of this, uh, Ryan Single uh, proposes that more municipalities build their own internet services. You know, this is in response to, you know, like all the big monopoly carriers, you know, like the Comcasts and the uh, the AT&Ts, you know, like the big uh, service providers that, you know, there can be more choices. And, you know, a very easy one to do is uh, municipal uh, fiber builds that, uh, you know, quite a few cities have been uh, doing these days. Uh, they're most notably a success in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, you know, but unfortunately, uh, the existing establishment doesn't exactly like this and will put up a fight and extend this plan out for years. Uh, and then even also some state legislatures have banned these builds outright, uh, mm. especially in places like North Carolina, I think. So, yeah, the Internet is under assault. And this is a real assault, unlike the war on Christmas Would you say that uh, we like literature on this podcast? Um, depending. Yep, I'd say that too. I'd I'd say that too. Um, so, uh, some guy uh, took a Markov chain and he shoved the uh, what you might call it the King James Bible with a book called Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. Okay, so, so I, that's how he did it. The it was said he was did it with software. So he took the two books and he was merging yeah, the he, sentences together programmatically. Yeah, he he okay. shoved that through a Markov chain algorithm, and uh, he came up with some rather hilarious uh, things here. Uh, so should we uh, go through some of these? Okay. So um, anonymous asked. How do you efficiently sort a large set of data? Answer. To design such a system, it is quite natural to regard an integer as a specific kind of real number, which is in the Lord your God. 
Uh, ye also, as lively stones, are built up using only the storage and addressing capabilities of typical computer memories. Uh, you want to read some of these? Oh, here, I'll, I'll read one. I like the one, I am God and there is a constructor. That was actually kind of made sense because there is one constructor and there is one God. Yep. Uh, let's see, the one underneath of that. Uh, God saw that it was true or false each time. Uh, yet there is no assignment, no local state variable, and consequently none of the servants of your Lord. <laughs> so, so how is the, the software... The, the, I'm not familiar with the algorithm. How, how does it, does it look and try and make grammatical sense out of it? Or how does the software work? Uh, I haven't had much, uh, look into Markov chain algorithms, but what they do is they notice certain phrases, you know, in a text and they, you know, they sort of look at, you know, what is the probability of the next word, you know, given this uh-huh. word and the previous ones. I think that's how it works. Okay. So, and they sort of grab random parts from, you know, the body of text that it is given. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's that's how you get, you know, alternating, you know, talking about, you know, the Lord your God, and then talking about reversing linked lists or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, there's a whole, there's, there's actually a Twitter account that is nothing but this. Um... Let's see, uh, for to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might fulfill the word of God and serve tables. <laughs> of course, that, that seems to be more of a restaurant thing than a computer science thing. You must have been talking about data tables or something in that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see, uh, we print the obtained value and then invoke the internal loop again with a loud voice. And, uh, what, what I really liked, uh, when I came across this was, in fact, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and put it in the generic arithmetic package. Evidently, that's what you forget. (laughs) Yeah, when (laughs) when I first read that, my sides almost split. (laughs) <laughs> so um let's see i think this might be uh more for a, a computer game uh we can model the world as a wilderness <laughs> let's see unfortunately i didn't find any uh particular quotes about satan in this but i think i only went back to about page six or seven on this and the uh current tumblr blog goes back to page 13 so you know, there's likely even more hilarity if you look for it. This would be an easy blog to run because it just kind of automatically makes your content for you since it's your algorithm. Well, well apparently, um, he sort of has a buffer of these. So he's yeah. actually like pre-ran and put it into a queue. So like this is not everything that comes out of it. Um, in fact, he has a separate blog here called the uh, like the King James Programming Rejects that you know are sort of not exactly funny or or all one of one or the other uh or sort of offensive or something mm-hmm. um but uh back to the original thing uh another one uh buridan argued that a perfectly rational dog placed between two equally attractive sources of food 
will starve to death, because thou bearest the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. <laughs> it just makes sentences that make no sense. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's... it. I guess in some weird way that could make sense. So the dog starved to death because you had the Ark of the Covenant! <laughs> so... Uh, anyways, uh, do you have anything to appreciate or deprecate? Still don't know about uh, Firefox and the, the can't search one word in the the, the so-called awesome bar. <laughs> Until well, they fix that. Oh, uh, well, hey, that's good enough. So, um, anyways, um, let's see. As you know, I uh, run my blog. And I've uh, sort of written that more or less completely from scratch. Um, so recently I did an update to that, which enhanced the uh, the markdown capabilities mostly. And uh, added a few slight customization features. But I, I, I have sort of neglected to update my GitHub account with that. So I did both at the same time. So I have updated the code on my blog and uh, put that on GitHub again. So if you want to check that out, go go for it. So you said you used the GitHub UI to, to upload it? Yeah, the uh, GitHub for Windows app. It uh, looks very Metro-y, uh, but because I'm on Windows 7, it does not take over my entire screen. <laughs> so... so I was curious, had you used the, the command line get before? No. Okay, so did it kind of... I, I was just curious how it looks from the point of view of not using get. Does it make sense using the UI like that? Yeah, it's, you know, very, you know, easy to use that. And I've sort of looked at the underlying git commands. Mm -hmm. And to that extent, I agree with my uh, lead developer at work in that this is 2013, why in the world do we have to use a command line for? Well, the command line does... There's <laughs> just something about typing stuff into the command line. While it has all the power there. While I agree with that, I think we've gone beyond the point to having to use that. We don't have to use that, but just because you don't have to... For, for most Git things, it seems that you have to use that command line. Well, there is a Git UI if you wanted to use it for even the normal Git. So. I haven't installed VI in the, the, the plugin in Visual Studio the other day. So I can actually go back to the old way of doing things. <laughs> so, it does not look like we have any podcast feedback this time. So, must uh, be doing a good job. Uh, or that, or I haven't been uh, doing podcast stuff. Don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> so if you uh, have any questions or any additions to this, uh, we'd love to hear from you, uh, even if you're on iTunes. Uh, in fact, if you're listening to us on iTunes, go ahead and do this anyway. Go to thenexus.tv and click the contact link at the top and uh, tell us we're here. And uh, don't forget to, uh, in the show drop-down, uh, see under the contact link up there, under the show drop-down, choose, uh, whatchamacallit, this is control structure. 
So I have been on quite a few uh, shows of late, and uh, you could probably catch me on the next episode of 8-Bit uh, talking about Broken Age. So uh, I guess you can uh, look forward to that. And uh, don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day. So don't forget to back up your stuff. See, I do need to do that still today. So, uh, hi mom, how are you doing? Thank you again to uh, Ryan for putting us up on iTunes. So, anything else you want to add in here? Nope. Guess we're good. So, uh, yeah, I don't really have any big plans aside from uh, staying warm. It's not that cold out anymore, though. It's not near as bad as last week. So... Uh, yep, I guess I will, uh, get to editing this and maybe post about that one Broken Age game, and then get on another podcast and talk about that. It's, uh, it's strange how your, uh, life is, uh, like a wild loop like that. Anyways, I uh, guess we'll, uh, see, uh, whenever I get a chance to. Uh, if you want to be a part of this podcast, uh, don't forget to, uh, do that contact thing and say you want to be a part of this podcast. I'd love to have you. So, uh, would you love to be on this podcast again? Sure. All right, maybe we can do something. So, uh, guess that's all for now. So, uh, have a good one. You too.